welcome to Neuro Podcasters, a neurology podcast created for medical students. To get the most out of this episode, you can download the supplementary case notes which are available on Vital. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and I'd like to thank Dr. Davies for joining us today to discuss a case presentation uh, that came to the Neurology Clinic. Hello, Dr. Davies. Hello. So um, I'd like to go through the history, if that's okay, and then we'll break off just to get your thoughts on what the history tells us. So we've got a 40-year-old right-handed female who came to a clinic uh, with difficulty walking and falls. So she gave a history um, which had been present over the last six months or so, but had worsened over the month before she came to see us. Having previously walked independently, she was now requiring a stick for any sort of significant distance, and she reported that she felt off balance. In particular, she, she mentioned that she felt like she was walking on a mattress at times. Her legs were quite stiff and not as strong as they were, and she felt they could tire easily. And she also got pains and cramping pains in her legs, particularly at night. Alongside that, she reported urinary frequency and urgency, and she was getting up to pass urine several times during the night, and she was also constipated. So she didn't report any neck trauma or any pain, uh, but she did get episodes where she would get experience of shooting pain going up and down her spine if she was looking up or down, and noticed some loss of dexterity using her hands, particularly when holding keys and undoing buttons. So this had all been going on over six months, and four years earlier, she'd actually had a period lasting around a week where she lost vision in her right eye. She saw her GP at the time, uh, but eventually her symptoms recovered, and she was told it was likely to be an atypical migraine. And then two years ago, uh, she also reported a two-week episode where she had altered sensation of pins and needles down her right arm and leg. This was diagnosed as a trapped nerve, and eventually the symptoms settled. So in terms of her medical history, she has underactive thyroid, for which she takes thyroxine, and she also has migraines with aura. She has no surgical history of note. She's a mother of uh, two children who are aged 10 and 12. She's a smoker and doesn't drink alcohol. So we've got a lady here who's 40 who's presenting with difficulties with her walking. Now in general terms, when you see a patient presenting like that, which aspects of the nervous system do you think about that could be affected? So the first thing I think about generally is whether or not this is a a neurological problem in the sense of a problem that's best understood in terms of the wires and the anatomy of the nervous system. So there are lots of experiences that people and patients have that are reactive and general effects within the nervous system without necessarily being due to a structural abnormality. I think in this case there are various features that certainly raise the possibility of structural disease and what you've described to me um, opens the debate right out really. So if we're saying that it's primarily a motor problem then that could obviously be a musculoskeletal problem at the most basic, uh, a joint deformity or something like that, that seems unlikely. But then, of course, if you're talking about the nervous system itself, there could be a, a disease in the muscle, the neuromuscular junction, the peripheral nerves or plexus, uh, the nerve roots, the spinal cord, uh, or indeed uh, part of the brain. Within the brain, there are motor 
effects that are strength, those straightforward motor functions, but also more complicated motor functions. So the speed of movement, which when it's not fast enough, we call bradykinesia, or disordered, incoordinated movement, which we call ataxia. So that's the range of possibilities. And you've given quite a, a rich list of bits of information here. So you've mentioned that there is a problem with the lower limbs, so movement of the lower limbs, gait, and you've mentioned also a problem with using the hands. So in terms of the straightforward wires, that would point most obviously to the to the spinal cord in the neck, the cervical mm. spinal cord. And there are other aspects that point to more detailed aspects of, of, of one's uh, formulation beyond that. So, so are there any key features that would sort of make you think, oh, I could, I could have ruled this in or, or rule that out mm. based on what you've said? Yeah, so one of the most um, sinister diseases uh, affecting motor function would be a degenerative disease like motor neuron disease and the presence of sensory symptoms uh, and symptoms involving the the sphincters, the bowel and bladder, that makes a degenerative disease of the motor system less likely. So this would feel more like a structural lesion. So maybe some, some disease going on within a part of the flesh of the nervous system, or maybe something pressing on the nervous system and causing it to fail to work. Okay, and I, I guess that sort of ties into my next question, which was often in neurology we emphasise the tempo of mm, symptoms. Yeah. And hearing the speed of this, are there any clues with regards to what the types of pathology yeah. you might expect? Well, um, it's it's not an, an abrupt onset uh, presentation, is it, that might uh, follow trauma or uh, a vascular lesion. It's pretty uh, long-term and that makes certain types of infection, certain types of, of uh, aggressive inflammatory disease less likely. But I think this tempo over six months and maybe some prior symptoms does suggest the possibility of a, a low-grade form of inflammation. Um, there are chronic infections, um, and we haven't definitively excluded those. Um, I think if you're placing credence on the earlier neurological symptoms, which I'd be inclined to do, I think that makes neoplasia, some kind of cancer within the nervous system, rather less likely than an inflammatory process. Uh, Obviously, I've got the examination findings for this data, which I'll, I'll give to you in a moment, but is there any particular aspect of the exam that you would be focused on? Uh, so if we're thinking about the basic distinction in neurological examination, central versus peripheral, um, what you're thinking about here are, on the one hand, signs that would be in keeping with a specific lesion within the cervical spinal cord, on the one hand, or maybe a more diffuse abnormality affecting, say, the peripheral nerves. Hmm. So the distinction between the signs of spinal cord pathology, a cervical myelopathy, and the signs of a a peripheral nerve problem, a polyneuropathy, would be what I would be 
thinking about. So that's the distribution of the weakness, uh, the uh, status of uh, tone, muscle tone within the limbs, uh, and the reflex responses. Okay. Just to summarise really the key findings, so uh, cranial nerve exam essentially is normal. The upper and lower limb exam evidenced spasticity uh, when assessing tone, and there was some weakness. Now, the difference in the upper limbs, it tended to be the, the flexors that were okay. the stronger muscle groups, whereas in the lower limbs, it tended to be the extensors that were the stronger mm-hmm. muscle group. Mm-hmm. Overall, her reflexes were, were very brisk throughout, mm-hmm. and her plantar responses were both extensor, mm-hmm. and she also had clonus. So she had four beats of clonus at the right ankle mm-hmm. and uh, sustained clonus on the left. Mm-hmm. The doctors also did Romberg's testing on her, and that was positive. So with her okay. eyes closed, she was mm-hmm. more unbalanced. Mm-hmm. And her cerebellar exam was normal. Her pinprick exam was essentially normal. Uh, joint position was reduced to the ankle, and vibration was felt at the knee. Okay. So lo- lots of information there, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's a, you know, not all that succinct a summary. Where does that sort of help you? Well, I was describing to you that the involvement of the upper limbs and lower limbs pointed to the cervical spinal cord and and I think what you've told me there reinforces that suspicion of something going on in that bit of one's neuroanatomy and certainly you haven't described anything that would make me think of uh, a widespread peripheral nerve problem affecting the nerves both in the upper and lower limbs. So, so this is an, an upper motor neuron syndrome. You've got weakness, you've got increased tone of a spastic character, uh, you've got uh, increased reflexes, and you've got abnormal superficial uh, reflexes, the upgoing plantar responses. Mm-hmm. So what conclusions do you think you can draw about the anatomy of this Well, if we're using problem. buzzwords, the, 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 the buzzword would be an upper motor neuron syndrome, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, and so the implication is that we have involvement of the corticospinal tracts and that that involvement is at a site that allows the abnormal signs to manifest both in the upper and the lower limbs, which yeah. means that it is, it is either at or above the outflow to the brachial plexus and the upper limbs. Okay. So that's above the mid-cervical level. Is there a differential diagnosis that you work through at, at this point? There's the, the, the writings on the wall with this case, but in general, the most important disease not to miss here is compressive cervical myelopathy. Now, you could have anything compressing the, the cervical cord, um, but by far the commonest, um, which you know, might cause symptoms increasing over a few years would be wear and tear change, so arthritic change, or when we refer to arthritis of the spine, it's called spondylosis. So a compressive cervical spondylosis is that condition which is among the commonest causes of this and also a disease which, by treating it promptly, not today, um, but in the near future that could prevent an increase in disability and possibly facilitate some degree of recovery. And the contrast to to that um, hypothesis in the same site would be an intrinsic disease of the spinal cord itself, and that could be uh, an inflammatory process. You, You could, of course, 
get a get a, an ischemic infarct of the cord or, or any of a number of other uh, abnormalities in the in the flesh of the cord but but inflammation uh, in the cord is the most likely of those non-compressive diseases okay and and I guess leading on from that what investigations would you request and I guess thinking about it in terms of both maybe the imaging you'd do as well as some of the blood tests that would be important to make sure. Okay, the, the, the test that is most informative in this situation is an MRI scan of the cervical spine. Uh, and uh, really in the position of a specialist seeing these patients, that's what you would advise. Now, there are blood tests which, in truth, are very unlikely to be abnormal, um, but vitamin B12, folic acid level, copper levels. So there are metabolites when deficient uh, can cause degenerative change within the spinal cord. And uh, something that we didn't um, come back to as I'd intended, you you mentioned the Romberg sign. And, um, of course, that that is... uh, the situation where a person is off balance when the visual input for proprioception is removed. So when a person closes their eye, closes their eyes when they're standing up, they they fall over, fall over, or or they require you to catch them to prevent them falling over, preferably. Um, and and what that implies is a problem of the proprioceptive system. And of course, in this instance, the, this could be. The, the dorsal column mm. system within the, the spinal cord and combined uh, degenerative change in the motor pathways and in the dorsal column is relatively characteristic of uh, vitamin B12 okay. deficiency, for instance. As you, as you can see, uh, looking at the case, we, we do have some of the results of the investigations uh, to hand. So I, I guess the, the test that you'd, you've mentioned, the blood test, the B12 folate mm-hmm. uh, and, and the copper are um, are all normal so they okay. were they were checked and also as you kind of alluded to that probably the most informative test that was done was an MRI of the cervical spine which mm-hmm. uh, I can show you here okay. now the, the the radiologist report of this scan uh, mentioned that in several areas within the cervical spine there was signal change with increased signal intensity noted mm-hmm. that in the right clinical context would be very suggestive of a demyelination mm-hmm. So I, I guess my question to you is, you're now seeing this patient in clinic, you have the results of the tests, you have the access to the history and the examination. What is it that you would tell the patient at this stage? And maybe we'll come on to it, but I, I guess is there anything about the history that I gave you about previous symptoms that would also be influencing what you tell the patient? Okay. The information that we have here is more clear than is sometimes available in uh, a typical outpatient setting. And it's important for a mature clinician to be guarded in discussing their findings, both factors that reassure them, but also factors that worry them. But what we have here is uh, appearances that are very suggestive of inflammatory demyelination of the type that occurs in multiple sclerosis. In this patient, we have a prior history of fairly non-specific sensory episode and also a more distinctive uh, episode of visual symptoms, very much in keeping with inflammatory 
optic neuropathy, optic neurosis, and of course that uh, type of patchy occasional uh, disease, so uh, what we would refer to as dissemination of, of the symptoms in time and space, is very characteristic of, of mm. MS. So I think really with this scan and the, the history that you have and the confirmatory examination findings, you would be referring to this as, uh, as, as MS to the patient and, you know, taking them forward, um, perhaps um, discussing some of the positive aspects about MS, you know, that many people with MS have relatively mild impairment compared to some conditions and in you know involving um, specialist nurses and other means of of supporting them in the early uh, phase of, of of coming to terms with a diagnosis i suppose the other things that you've got to be aware of as a, as a senior clinician is you know are there are there other things that that we should be doing and um <clears throat> you know are there other tests in, in this situation so um there's various tests, you know, um, we can do neurophysiological tests of the optic nerve, visual evoked responses, but actually that's not going to tell us very much in this clinical setting. We can do uh, CSF, cerebrospinal fluid analysis, uh, through a lumbar puncture, and that has certain abnormalities that are picked up with low-grade inflammation within the central nervous system. But actually that's not going to be crucial in the diagnosis here. Perhaps um, the the most useful uh, test would be to do an MRI scan of the brain in addition to the C-spine, as obviously there's 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 a lot of neural flesh within the cranium by comparison to how much there is in a in a given length of uh, of the spinal column and if there's inflammation within the flesh of the cns then you can see those lesions more often within the brain and get an idea of the burden of pathology perhaps the most important thing in terms of the burden of pathology here is whether this instance of ms at the point of our diagnosing it whether it is actively inflammatory uh, MS, so what we refer to as relapsing remitting MS. And if it were that, with uh, relapses occurring more frequently than once every couple of years, then the patient uh, might be eligible for the so-called disease-modifying treatments. Um, but of course, uh, you know, that their treatments, their strong treatments, their monoclonal antibodies, chemotherapy-type treatments that have an effect on the immune system, and um, whatever benefits they may have, and increasingly we, we know that there are benefits, we would only use them um, currently in our practice in patients who were known to be in the inflammatory phase of MS. The value of those sorts of treatments when people have advanced disease with progressive symptoms um, is less. Um, And in this case, as is often the case, it's not entirely clear from the story that we've had as to whether the symptoms over the past six months are actually instances of relapse one occurring six months ago and one occurring a month ago when the symptoms worsened more obviously or whether it's actually a steady decline. Great. 
So thanks very much uh, for, for discussing the case Pleasure. with us. So, Are there any key things about this case that you would hope you know, could really be emphasised? Okay, I would say three things. First, be aware of the syndrome, the constellation of signs that point to disease in the cervical cord. Okay. So that's a very important neurological syndrome. Secondly, when you're talking about widespread symptoms, as this patient has, lots of patients have symptoms like that. And in many cases, there isn't a very serious underlying disease. But in this case, the persistence of the symptoms uh, makes the... Uh, makes our level of suspicion higher. Hmm. And likewise with the scan, uh, in this case, those lesions, those high signal lesions within the brain, because they make sense uh, with the clinical history, they are useful information for us. But quite similar appearances to a non-expert might arise from someone who's had hypertension for a few years and so it's important to interpret the scans in the light of the clinical uh, clinical presentation great yeah thanks very much we hope you enjoyed listening look out for further episodes coming out in the near future